man, I just maybe I should just come out and ask you. I've been thinking about. There was this guy, his name is Andrew Walker, professor, and he wrote an article and he said, no. The end of Roe v. Wade is not the beginning of a theocracy. You're not living in a theocracy because Roe v. Wade ended. And uh, I haven't completely read the article yet. I just saw the title of it. And uh, I think he wrote him and one other person wrote it. And I'm going to go read it. But I noticed that people really do have a massive problem with a theocracy. And I, I'm just like, wow, okay. Um, and and I was, I was thinking, I wanted to ask the question, why people have a problem with a theocracy? And I, I think it would be really cool to go through all of the real reasons that people have a problem with a theocracy and point out that all of their problems that they have with a theocracy should be all of their problems that they currently have with the system right now. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? Think it's, I think it's because the system they have right now, transforming it into a theocracy directly would be terrifying. Right. I mean, as if it doesn't you, have the, one right now. <laughs> well, it is. A, it's a theocracy. Um, like right now, we have a terror-based government, right? I mean, we don't have a. Nobody thinks. Oh well, we've you've seen the response to Roe versus Wade that we don't have the rule of law. We don't have the uh, a uh, a legal system that we have that we all are grateful for that. You know, we we want people coerced into doing the things we want um, by force, you know, and and that system is is a theocracy with a terror a terrifying god at the top, um, and but it's a fight for who for who's at the top right now. Is it a republic or is it a democracy? Democracy is when Demos is at the top of this system. That's and that's terrifying, right? If Demos is the god, and he's at the top of this system, or we're at the top of this system, then whatever is the majority should get to make the laws. And that's the argument that's being made right now. How dare they go against the Demos. majority, against the Demos? They're they're they have uh, spit in the face of God, of of the gods, you know, the Demos. Um, and that's a lot of the argument that's going on. What we're just going, but but it's because they don't understand what they have a different understanding of what a legal system is, what it's supposed to do, what a court system is, what it's supposed to do. Does it fit into the world? Does it have a, a place, or is it just a means of directing coercive force, a means of directing power? Um, is it a will to power, or is it a um, is there an actual metaphysical legal reality that we're trying to reflect into the world um, with our legal system? It's a it's a different understanding. There are two there are two there are two warring understandings of the universe of the cosmos at hand. And it's not the right and the left because a lot of people on the right agree with the people on the left. They think the problem is just we should have the majority and be in power. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I, I am trying to, you know, one of the things I don't think we do well is really try to understand. Okay, first, let me say this. Um, and this probably has to be the most self-serving podcast that exists out there on planet Earth. <laughs> I, I really am like, I kind of am just going this direction. If people want to go with me, that's fine. But I just, there might be some people who are listening to us for the first time. It's like, welcome into the living room. Take your shoes off. There's drinks inside the fridge. Grab some if you want some. There's also some fruit on the table. But we about to chill over here. So, like, yeah. this really is me talking with you and trying to figure out stuff, you know? So it doesn't have, everybody's like, there's no music in the beginning. It's like, no, because it's actually unplugged. Like we're not, <laughs> there isn't a structure to this in a typical way. So that said, this kind of like your first time me welcome, welcome to the home. Um, but it really is self-serving. It's all about me. I just want everybody to know that. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, I don't think we spend enough time trying to really understand where the other side really is coming from and what they're really saying. And so th that's kind of what sent me down this train of thought in one sense is that um, when people are arguing about a theocracy, they, they're arguing about this power forced on them. They're arguing about this um, authority that is requiring them to do something. They're arguing about you know, and they're trying to put it in the fact that, well, it's a religious belief that is coming from someone or something, a God that is saying that I must do this. But I don't understand like anything that sets down a moral path or a moral foundation is coming from a being or coming from something that is considered to be the highest authority. Right. So when we say you shouldn't do this, the question is, and every little kid understands this. Why? Right, every little kid is like, why? Like they get the question, they understand. Who says I can't do that? Why can't I do that? What authority is that coming from? So when I see people arguing against a theocracy, or or they're mad about religious people pushing their beliefs on folks, I'm like, um, so who do you want pushing your beliefs on you? Right, like what what system? Let me know what it is the system that you want to push your beliefs on somebody like what is that system because it's going to happen somebody's right. beliefs are going to get pushed on you somebody's moral values are going to be at the forefront so we're not questioning whether or not we should have a moral value system uh, we're, we're questioning where should it come from right and so i i guess i want to understand when people are afraid or concerned about a, a theocracy what is it that they're they're at you know what is it they're concerned about? Because they don't, they're not concerned about power and authority. They're concerned about whose they, but they are concerned about authority, right? Cause there's not, cause authority is not a real thing in the modern system or in the modern mind. Um, authority is, has to do with power and coercion, not with uh, right to rule not because there's, there's not a belief in in a higher in hierarchy um wait you got to say that again because i think that authority is not about power because yeah, authority authority um it, when we say authority we immediately think that it has to that's the power make other people do what they don't want to do right that's what authority is yeah that it's coercive force um but 
authority and scripturally speaking, it has to do with the, um, it, it's the authority is established first when Adam is given dominion over the world and so that he can garden it and bring it to its intended end, right? To its telos, right? It has a, there's a, a place that the, the world is supposed to end up. Authority has to do with the, who is responsible to bring it to that end, right? Who is the gardener of this particular piece of what the world, um, and, and the gardener's job is to make a fruitful space, right? So uh, that's what, that's authority scripturally speaking. And so there's a hierarchy set up, but it's a hierarchy that has to do with, um, with, with dominion. Um, and, but see, even dominion, we immediately think in terms of domination, right? Right. Dominion is I can make other people or make something do something it doesn't want to do. Um, but that's that is an anti-hierarchical understanding of the world. But it is but it has it has to do with what kind of world we believe we live in. Right. So we've talked a little bit about Kant on here, but I think I think Nietzsche is actually at who we're in conversation with when we're right now, right in this particular discussion. And, you know, we, what, what you've seen is Nietzsche has won the debate and now we are, we, we don't realize that's who we're actually debating. Um, and so we're losing the debate because um, uh, of that. So I, th- I think a, a, maybe a quick, yeah. Overview of Nietzsche. You froze on my screen. Are you oh, still good I'm, on no, your I'm side? Still, yeah, I'm still good. Go ahead. Okay. So um, so Nietzsche was a German uh, classicist. Right? He taught he taught the classics. He taught Greek literature, ancient literature, um, drama, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but he lived during that time when the cosm the cosmological revolution was happening and we don't even know that there was one I was, i'm looking like what <laughs> um, but this was the major the major shift that i think switched and changed all of our assumptions um and it started in milton's day milton you know he interacts with a little bit uh, but we tend to what we say in our history books is they used to believe that the world was flat and it was the center of of the universe. But now, uh, but then uh, they discovered that the sun was actually the center of the solar system, and uh, it, and weren't they so silly to think that the Earth was the center? Um, and uh, the that was they they were just uneducated. The reality is the folks in the middle ages were far more educated than anyone you meet ever in your life. Mm. Right? The, um, they valued education in a way that we don't at all. Um, and they, so you, you know, if they were, um, you know, if somebody that studied literature was also, you know, uh, amateur meaning someone who studied because they loved, they studied science, they studied ast- astronomy, they studied, uh, they studied, geometry and math and all of those things um, because they believed that all knowledge actually fit together into a unified whole because they were studying a 
a, a unified universe that fit together. Um, and we don't believe that anymore. That and the change began to happen. It started in Milton's day. He was aware of it. He mentions it a couple of times in his poetry. Um, he talks about the debates about whether or not the sun or the earth is the center um, of the solar system. But what he said, I mean, and even the fact that we call it now a solar system, right? It's a system that rotates around the sun is a change. Um, and it wasn't because uh, they didn't know they they understood how geometry works and how space works and if everything is moving um you it's it's arbitrary to pick what is the center of a moving system um you're but you have to pick a center in order to make predictions and and let the astronomical math work and they had picked the earth as the center um and when somebody came along and people had before the cosmological revolution, people had come along and said, you know, the math is easier if you put the sun at the center, right? And they knew that that was the case, but they said it, it doesn't make as much theological and philosophical sense. Um, and it and it's just a difference between hard math and easy math. I mean, the math is hard either way, but harder math and easier math. Um, and so even when they knew that you could do the math easier with the sun at the center, they stuck with uh, doing, doing the math about the solar system with the earth at the center for philosophical and theological reasons. And um, because the way that they imagined everything was that uh, the, cold, the further you got towards the center, um, the less movement there was, uh, which is true geometrically speaking. Uh, mathematically speaking, and um, the less movement there was, the less heat there was, and because of sin, we are uh, we are um, th the 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 darkness of our sin has actually caused us to be uh, further from life, um, and so in Dante's Inferno, they go down into the center of the earth and the further they get down the colder it gets until they get to the very center where everything is um, covered in ice and frozen and not moving because the sin has separated them so far from life um, that the poetic image that made the most sense was frozen in And that is a theological point, not a scientific point that he's making. It was a poetic theological point, not a scientific point. Hold on. You um, froze for a second. You said frozen in place. And you said that that's a theological point he's making, not a, a scientific yeah, it's, point. He's, it's not a scientific point that he's making. He's making a, a theological point um, poetically. Yeah. Uh, but the math works either way in terms of astronomically speaking, if everything is in motion, um, you have to pick a point from which to to to, to make calculate every, to, yeah. to calculate everything, and you can pick the sun or the moon. If you pick the moon, if you or I mean the sun or the earth, if you pick the sun, um, the the then the moons have epicycles, rather, um, and the planets don't have epicycles. If you pick the Earth, the planets and the moons of the planets all have epicycles. 
and it's just more complex. Is this but going, you're just is is this picking. going is this going back to what we talked about with the two centers? Yeah. So well, so the two centers um, it, that has to do with the fact that not all of the rotations around um, the sun are circles, or that the, they're that they're that they have that they're all oblong. Uh, the, the things rotate in an oblong way because there are actually two centers. Um, and so that, that has to do with if you, if you have a solar system with the sun at the center versus uh, a, uh, putting the earth at the center, then you get these oblong shapes or then epicycles, which are, you know, rotate, you know, you've got kind of that uh, a flower shaped rotation mm. around the earth. Um, of the planets, but it, the, what happened was the, it wasn't an understanding of the sun being at the center that actually made the difference. What it was, was putting the sun at the center, um, changed the imaginative understanding of the universe where, um, so in Dante's Inferno, you have it's really pretty amazing. He moves down through the nine levels of hell. He gets to the center. It's completely frozen. And he, as he as they climb down Satan's shaggy haunches um, in order to get all the way through hell and begin the ascent up the other side, gravity shifts directions because they know that the earth is round. They know that, that that means that the center is down and he's, and if you could pass through the center, you begin going up, right? They know all of that. And so he, he climbs through and he begins going up the other side, which is the purgatorio. And then he, then they begin climbing th- or he begins his motions through the heavens um, and he gets to the very edge and the further he gets up and up and up the heavens, the more light there is, the more music there is, the more life, life there is. Everything is more and more alive the further you get from sin. And he gets to the very edge of everything, uh, the edge of creation, and God draws him through into his presence. And he says, and I've just and he everything immediately is recentered right so the very edge where god is is recentered and becomes the center of all things. so it is it's this imaginative understanding where center is not just a physical only a merely a physical property center has to do with um the point through which you integrate everything what was lost in the cosmological revolution, as they began saying the earth isn't the center, the sun is actually the of the solar system, they weren't just saying that. They were also saying, and the rest of the universe is dark, empty, and cold, and meaningless. Mm. Because there is no integrating, uh, there is no integrating point, because materialism was taking over at the same time. Now, we... In our history books, we say that the change was from the earth being the center to the sun being the center. What actually happens is you have this move towards strict materialism where anything that wasn't material um, is no longer considered real or important, right? So if it's not material, it's not important. And so Kant begins just by separating the non-material into its own realm. Mm. 
the, everything material has to be explained in purely material terms. Nietzsche says, well, that's just nonsense. Everything, if everything's material, everything's material. And we don't have to, everything that's not material doesn't exist is what he, he says is an invention of man to gain power over others. Right. Okay, so then take it, me back. What is it that Kant was saying was not material? What are not material? Um, God, morals, love, uh, virtues. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you mm. have. All, he, so he mm. he says <coughs> he oh. says rightly if there's not a God then there isn't any uh, moral imperatives. Except right? for you that have one. To have you have to have <laughs> an absolute. Um, a, Absolute morality that exists apart from ourselves mm. to, that we compare to for there to be a morality that makes any difference. Um, the cosmological revolution says, in fact, the world is a is is a, um, a monolith of chaos. Mm. There are times and places where certain creatures man gains enough power over creation to push back the chaos and make room to build something eventually the chaos is going to come back in but through uh gaining enough coercive power we push back the chaos and make it possible to build something and um so uh, morality um in its best usage is just the agreement to get together in order to push back the chaos enough to make room for society. Right. So what, so what Nietzsche says is, so he's a strict atheist and he says, we don't have to argue for atheism, right? Because he says, Christianity doesn't fit into this cosmos, mm. right? He, uh, he sees, and he literally, he says, because of astronomy, because of the, the advancements in astronomy, we know that Christianity no longer fits in this cosmos, right? A cosmos that is all chaos, that is based fundamentally chaotic, empty, cold, dark. There isn't, Christianity doesn't make any sense in that. You had to have the older understanding of a cosmos that was fully integrated, that completely fit together, that was filled to the brim with hierarchy, beauty, song, glory, light, right? All of that. Um, he said, you have to have all of that if Christianity as a system is going to make any sense. Because we know that the world has, is not that anymore, we don't have to actually argue against God's existence. All we need is a psychological explanation for where he came from. Mm. Right Now, Freud is the one who's famous for, um, for developing the psychological uh, the, the psychological explanation of where God came from, right? This, that, that God was a psychological crutch that we had to invent in order to make society, but we don't need him anymore. He was a, a, a father in the sky that fulfilled a, a psychological need. And, but Nietzsche does the same thing where he conflates philosophy and psychology. But what he does, he's, it's two main things. So Freud spent a lot of time reading Nietzsche and he stopped reading him because he said, I'm not going to be able to come up with any of my own ideas to be famous for if I keep reading <laughs> Nietzsche because he explained everything already. So, um, which tells you a lot about Freud. But he, um, but uh, Nietzsche 
is the 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 great enemy of mankind is the metaphysic of Christianity mm. that believes sin and guilt have are have a meta have metaphysical properties. There is no metaphysic. Right. So that the, he's he says there is there is no great thing that holds reality together outside of just simply the material existence and the material laws. Um, and Nietzsche's he's a phenomenal writer. He's a lot of fun. He's very bombastic. In fact, he's he's sort of like an atheistic Doug Wilson, right? He's like hilarious, bombastic. Um, he doesn't care that much about what other people think about him and so he just you know this will get a great re- this this will get a great response you know that sort of um attitude he's he's pretty funny um but his his whole thing is if there's no in in a in a cosmos that isn't integrated by any metaphysical principles but that isn't integrated by any if there's no integration point for everything we're just material we're just stuff bouncing along. And, um, and he says, and we, what we want is power, right? Because that's the only um, thing that can defend us against the encroaching chaos. This, this is the old Greek mentality. I mean, he's, he is a classicist. So he's actually getting at what ancient paganism was based on. Right in ancient paganism, the world is is a uh, is dangerous, chaotic, trying to eat and destroy you everywhere. It's encroaching in upon you, and whoever is powerful enough to hold back the chaos is worshipped as the god in the moment. Right, so the titans held back the chaos, so they were worshipped. But when somebody was able to destroy the titans, Zeus and um, then he becomes he and his his uh, other beings get to be worshipped as God because now they're holding back the chaos. Um, eventually, the emperor is the one that holds back the chaos, so he's worshipped as a god. But the f- purpose of the gods is to hold back the chaos. Oh. But if we live in a simply chaotic universe, then we also are internally simply. Uh, filled with chaos, right? Whatever we see in the sky, because of the way God created us, we will assume is reflects the inside of us. That's the, all throughout history. If you want to recreate humanity, recreate their understanding of the heavens, recreate their understanding of the universe, and you will recreate the way they see themselves. Um, because we do live in this fully, inter- we actually do live in a fully integrated universe, um, the, and part of the integration is we were created to look up into the sky, see the heavens, and then know that um, that that is a true reflection of the heaven of heavens and that what is done in heaven is then supposed to be done on earth. And so we we take our marching orders from the sky one way or the other. Mm. When the cosmological revolution came along, the marching orders orders shifted because suddenly it was dark, cold, empty, chaotic, and trying to kill you. Trying to kill you? Is that the what you Because you broke up. Yeah. Trying to kill you. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. that's what the heavens were doing. And so suddenly it recreates our understanding of the world. It shifts everything. And what is it that we need then? 
we need to amass power somewhere. And Nietzsche predicts the 20th century. What's going to happen? You're going to begin seeing the amassing of power in governments, and then and it's going to be bloody and violent. But he just says, that's just what we need to do. That's what we, you know, that's how you hold back the chaos. You amass enough power. And that so it's very Machiavellian. When you amass enough power, then you have control over reality. Right. So it so it really is a fundamentally different view of everything, right? Of of existence um, than what you have presented in the scriptures, which is that you have a an a universe that is a fully integrated whole. And the thing that holds it all together is Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. So he holds it together in his person. He, hold, uh, he holds it together in, and he holds it together by means of exercising the offices that he holds. He exercises the offices that he holds by establishing offices in the world to reflect him. Right. He gives gifts mm. when, when uh, he, he ascends on high and he gives gifts to men. And then it begins talking about the office <laughs> that he establishes on the earth. Right. He uh, he establishes offices on the earth as gifts because he it's an it's an integrated universe in which authority is a blessing because authority um, is is the authority that a gardener has the authority to protect, preserve and bring to its intended end, whatever it is that, that established there, right? It's, it's an, it's an authority that makes space for things to become what they're supposed to be, a, uh, um, which is not a coercive power. Um, it, it's a, pro- there, there, there needs to be power, but it's a protective power, right? You protect the innocent from um, the guilty. And this is one of the things that's crazy is Nietzsche's, if you want to see somebody that has actually delved into the depths of the psychology of mankind and found how sinful we are, Nietzsche is the guy to do it. That's what he, you know, all of the philosophers in his day were saying man is basically good and they are and, and what they want is to be happy and they'll do whatever it, they think is going to make them happy. And he's like, you haven't met very many people, have you? Most of the people I know are are mean spirited. And even if they're kind, it's because they're trying to take advantage of somebody somehow. And they, it makes them feel better than other people. And he, he, he actually understands, psychologically speaking, that mankind is a power hungry monster. Um, but what he says is. But there's no such thing as sin. So that's what we are. And we may as well just face down the fact and be okay with it and be the best power hungry monster that we can. Um, and then he wants to, he tries to pull morality back in through the back door. But, you know, it, obviously it didn't work because Hitler was a big fan of Nietzsche. Did I lose you? No. Okay. But I'm trying to figure out how I can stop this recording, go back and listen to the last 25 <laughs> minutes. That's what I was trying to figure out. So, yeah. So, we, and this thing, I don't think the church understands in all of these things uh, that we're dealing with right now. We're not actually, um, we, the, 
the atheistic understanding of the world has already won. So we're actually in a fight, in an argument. We, we don't know what argument we're in, right? The argument is really over metaphysics. The argument is really over cosmology. What kind of place did God create? What kind of creature is my neighbor, right? Because if, because it makes, because the pro-choice arguments make perfect sense in a universe where the will to power is the only thing that holds back the destructive chaos that is trying to get at us all of the time. And because he is fully aware that, that if, that if what he's saying is true, then some people are going to have to die because of it, right? He, you're going to have to sacrifice people, right? Um, he, he has, he's fully aware of that. And he just, he's like, yeah, that's, but he's just like, that's reality. You always, we live in a place full to the brim with rivalry. And the only thing that you can do is sacrifice some of the people along the way. That is the, the pro-choice argument that we haven't been able to answer. Right. Some, um, the, when they talk about it, they talk about it as if parents and children are rivals. Right. 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 You're you're picking yourself or your children. Which is it going to be? And the Christians say, well, obviously you pick your children. Right. The reality is what we need to be saying is generations aren't rivals. It's not how it works. Mm. And when they become rival, I mean, I mean, if you think about ancient ancient writings, um, the reason we have words like patricide, matricide. And uh, uh, is because kids grew up and killed their parents, right? And that those are the stories they tell because the rival the rivalry between generations is something that in a, a, a in a non integrated cosmos the rivalry between generations is inevitable. In you know an integrated co- cosmos, yeah, just stop right it's there. It's not. Hold on, hold okay. on. Because what you just said. I think most Christians live, they have children and they grow up in that world where they expect their kids to be their rivals by default. Right. You know, by default, that's what they are expecting. So they have a broken cosmology before they ever get outside of their home. Right. Yeah. The, the, they, they, and I mean, think, think about this, Whoa. right? You see, that's just, I mean, we're not even talking about baptism. I mean, are we? Are we? No, I know. Are we? I mean, we kind of are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We yeah, are. We totally but are. We totally are. <laughs> so, think this is. So, I just went and watched the new, um, the new Jurassic Park movies. So, I was a huge Michael Crichton fan back when I was an atheist. Okay. Um, and he, so he wrote the original Jurassic Park. Um, I. He, he is a perfect example of the mythology of uh, the fundamentally a uh, non-integrated universe that is violent and chaotic, right? Mm. Because you bring back dinosaurs and the assumption is they'll try to kill us. That's just the assumption. Mm. Uh, the science doesn't tell us that all we've got are some bones. We, uh, the, wow! We, right, you better so we shut assume up. 
that if you go back into the ancient world, it's going to be more violent, more chaotic. You go back far enough. Right. So I would love to make a movie where they bring back dinosaurs and the dinosaurs are all <laughs> calm and peaceful and people start trying to turn them into monsters, right? Because they're not naturally monsters because they're from an earlier time before there was a rivalry between nature and mankind, which we started, right? Nature is not, is not um, naturally our rival, right? Nature is, is exactly the kind of place that we should be, uh, that will, that is, that was fully willing to embrace us and raise us and give us everything we needed. We started a rivalry with it because of our sin, right? Um, so, uh, the, the, um, I think, but, but we wouldn't even ask that question. I mean, I, I, the, it, it, the new one opened up and my first thought was, Ah, we're in a Nietzschean universe, I see. Because <laughs> every dinosaur is immediately trying to kill people as soon as it looks around and sees somebody. Right. But that um, that's a Machiavellian, a Nietzschean understanding of the cosmos that we have all swallowed. So we assume there's going to be generational conflict, generational rivalry. Um, we honestly, a lot of Christian well-meaning Christian parents think that's what they're trying to solve right. with discipline. Right. But that's not what discipline is. Scripturally speaking, discipline is tr uh, training you how to live well in, in, in the garden, right? Discipline right. is a training process. It's not a, it's not a, I'm angry um, at you. Therefore you angry, get, yeah. yeah. It's not a overcoming of, it's not a will to power game that we're playing right where it's not a one of us is going to have the power here and it's going to be me right it's it's a what what kind of world do you live in right if you go that direction you do you live that kind of way there's a lot of pain to be found let me train you um right with mm. limited small pain um that doesn't take any time to recover from now so that, you know, living that sort of way leads to long, big pain, right? That I was, so I'm training you away from the kind, the kind of living that leads to long, big pain so that you can actually enjoy your time together in the garden. But that involves creating a space, creating a, an atmosphere in the family that reflects reality, the integrated universe that God has made that's full of fellowship, joy, laughter, food, uh, music, you know, all of the th uh, poetry, uh, storytelling, um, joy, hard work, but the kind of, you know, joyful hard work, um, all of those things, uh, that that's what our, our home should reflect. And the training is part of that. Because there are ways there are ways to live that disintegrate that kind of atmosphere, um, that that uh, make it so that you can't enjoy the world God made, um, that are very very painful, right? And so the idea of training is sharp small pain. Um, shows you the edges, shows you the directions, the roads that lead to big long-term pain. Uh, so you stay off those roads and you come back to the joy-filled uh, space of 
uh, that of an integrated universe. You should never imagine that the atmosphere you breathe has no influence on you. Right. Yeah. That's, that's from Abraham Kuyper. <laughs> oh man, that's good. I was just reading them last night and everything that you're seeing right now is, it's striking me because I'm trying to figure out, you know, so you just basically made the point that the uh, issue over authority is really a cosmological problem. Right. And, and this, this is why the Lordship of Christ often doesn't sound like good news because uh, we think, we think uh, I get it, individualistically, yeah. right? We think by Lordship, that means the, there's a direct connection between me and Jesus where he rules me. And, and we can see that that's good news because, because we know that as a Lord, he's promises to provide and protect and that the love to a Lord looks like obedience, right? So, and if we, know and understand that the law is a summary of love, like Paul says, that the law is a description of life, like John says, um, if, if, um, and Moses says uh, that God lives this way and he gives us the law and then we reflect the life of God. We reflect the love that God has for us by living out the law. If we understand those things, then the Lordship of Christ sounds like good news. But if we don't believe in an integrated cosmos, then theocracy sounds like a curse because the ruler is um, is a coercive role the the ruler is is a role that he's the one that gets to tell you to do the thing you don't want right rather than I mean this is where something like you read Tolkien and it's so people get so drawn in because they want, they, they see Gimli with Galadriel. He's, he's happy, willing, wants a queen. He wants somebody like that to have authority over him because he knows that his life will grow and sprout and, and become better and greater by having a ruler like that because he gets to bow down to her because he sees that she is his greater, you know, he, mm. she is the, the, the hierarchy is a reflection of reality um, in that situation. Uh, the, it's it, tyranny. Um, the, the rule over equals, the rule of one equal over another equal is tyranny in that if the situation <laughs> is, he gets to tell us what to do um, when we don't want to do it. Right. But uh, in a situation where you the the beauty of hierarchy um, in the world is that God, that Jesus is greater than us. And so we get we get to bow down to him. We get to glorify him because he is a great leader, because he has. you. Know, so, I mean, this is. All, it's all connected because this take is Take your time, dude. You got all day. I don't care. I'm so like, just take your time. You don't need to feel rushed at all. Go for it. In the book of Hebrews, it's just so hard to know which direction to go. All of them. Like, go all of them. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> in the book of Hebrews, this is, this is I, I, the book. Of, when I was a brand new Christian, I can't remember. I think I read it in, I can't remember if it was Charles Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was really blessed to be 
offered access to a, a number of libraries that were packed full with amazing books when I was a brand new Christian. Mm. I can't remember if it was Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, but one of them says, uh, pick a book from the old Testament, a book from the new Testament and a, and a person from history and do everything you can to become an amateur expert on, um, it'll be better for your, it'll be better for you to, to dive in really deep in one place than to think you can dive in deep there and accomplish it because you'll never get deep anywhere. So wait, wait, a book and from so the I, Old Testament? A big uh, book from the Old Testament, a book from the New Testament, and a, a person from church history and dive in as deep as you can. And so... Okay, um, which one did so you I, put? Uh, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Hebrews in the New Testament, and, um, and then... Um, uh, you know, if, at first I was going to do John Calvin, but then I realized everyone did. So I ended up with Maximus, the confessor. So I've, <laughs> I've tried to get every, everything I can on Maximus and really dive in. And, okay. So um, I'm going to do Deuteronomy. And then Augustine of Canterbury, I tried, but then there wasn't enough. So, you know, you dig in really deep there. And I think um, I'm going to do, I'm going to do Deuteronomy and I think Ephesians. Or maybe Romans. Oh, Ephesians, yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, Ephesians might be the place for me to stay because I think those two work good for me with the law and then the structure. But, and then yeah. I, I have to do John Knox. Oh, that totally makes sense. I've got the works of John Knox <gasps> if you. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, I've got a photocopy of it all. I got a photocopy of it from the library. Uh, I just need to go pick it up. I know how to, I know where to get it. Okay, anyway, I just want to know okay. which ones you did. Now I know which ones I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the book of Hebrews, it's got so much about, so that's where the, the cosmological, that's where I first started in realizing that cosmology was so important because it has a whole bunch of stuff, the cosmos and the reflection of the cosmos mm. in the, in the, you know, that the Moses got a vision of heaven, came down and built the temple. Right. The mm. heaven of heavens. And then he came down and built the temple or the, the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was a picture of the heaven of heavens. But then you start the tabernacle and you realize the tabernacle also reflects the heavens. So the heavens is a reflection of the heaven of heavens. And then the tabernacle and the temple then and then the the Ezekiel's temple and then the the church, the temple at the end of revelation, which means that the church then is an integrated reflection of the life of the heaven of heavens, which is what the, the prayer teaches us. Right? So all of it, you realize, Oh my gosh, it all fits together. There's an integrated cosmos. And then came across CS Lewis who basically said, historically speaking, the Christians used to believe in an integrated cosmos. And then he gives a description of it. And then you start seeing it everywhere. You're reading Nietzsche and he says, you know, our astronomy has changed and that affects everything. And you're like, oh my gosh. So, um, but in Hebrews, the, uh, this is where uh, the author of Hebrews says he's both the priest and the sacrifice, right? And um, his priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. And we've talked about yeah. that the order the order of Melchizedek and the the priesthood the establishment of the priesthood of Melchizedek through the Davidic line and and the the rights of the firstborn of of David being priestly rights but the what makes him uh able to be the sacrifice is his office of kingship because the office of kingship is representative 
in the same way that, that the sacrifice is representative, right? You or ordain um, a king and lay hands on him um, in order to make him a king, just like you or you set up a sacrifice by laying hands on the sacrifice, right? That's how you turn an animal, you transform an animal from just a sheep to a sacrificial lamb by laying your hands on it three times, right? The priest lays his hands on it three times and then he becomes your representative and he dies on your behalf and then is burned up and can, and can ascend before God, right? Jesus, because he's the rightful heir of the throne of David, Mm -hmm. he's the adopted firstborn son of Joseph. Joseph is the rightful heir of the throne of David. Um, He, when, when, Joseph accepts him as the firstborn. He becomes the rightful heir of the throne of David. His baptism is not just a simple baptism. His baptism is also his anointing as king, right? The, the, that's why the, it's so important that the heavens open up, the throne comes, and the heavens open up, the dove comes down, and the, uh, the words of God are heard from the heavens. This is my beloved son, right? That's a, that's his, installation as king Mm. he and god himself does the installation right the the words the uh, as the the installing as king involve um being the having um the spirit the oil poured on you um having the being you have to be washed you have to have the oil poured on you and then you have to have the words spoken over haven't i seen that before why haven't I seen that? No, because I'm going to smack believe somebody. in an integrated oh. universe, right? We don't believe it's all integrated. So Jesus is, his, he's installed as king by God himself, which is why immediately it says the spirit pushes him into the wilderness in order mm. to fight. So he's now the king. So he goes out and he fights off the three temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness, that it failed in, which are also the temptations Adam faced in the garden, right? So he's installed as king of Israel, and he proves that his kingship, Israel, is also an Adamic kingship, right? By facing down the temptations um, of the wilderness, which were the temptations of Israel in the wilderness, which were also the temptations of Adam in the garden. Once he is king, he now is is our representative. Right? So now as he goes around, every meal is a king meal. Every meal, I mean, it, it's, it's also a, a, a communion meal because of the priesthood of Melchizedek, but every kingly meal was a priestly meal in, the, in all of David's kingship, all of his descendants. That's uh, that. It, uh, so. When he gets to the cross, he can die as our representative because he's the rightful heir of the throne of David. He, so he can be the priest that offers the sacrifice because he, of his Melchizedekian priesthood. But he can also be the king that is the sacrifice because he's the rightful heir of David and the rightful heir of Adam. He's the representative king and a, and a good king. You know a, good, a king is a good king because he gives himself for his people. He dies for his people. He gives himself away. It's the definition of a good king in the Bible um, and in 
all literature, really. Which is what I mean, Saul not, was supposed to go do. He's supposed to go fight. He's supposed to go exactly yeah. right, and that's how you know David is the is the good king and Saul is the bad king. Oh, They've both been anointed. Yep. David hasn't been installed yet when he. Uh, faces Goliath, but they've both been anointed king, right? So it's that there's a whole process that involves anointing as well as installation, right? And so they've both been anointed now as king and Saul doesn't go to fight. David does go to fight. He's willing to give himself for his people. And that's how you know which is the bad king, which is the good king. Saul is not a usurping king. He's a rightful king. Actually, David is adopted into his family and becomes the rightful heir because Jonathan gives up his rights to the throne. And then Jonathan dies as well, so there's not even a question. But um, but the, the rightful heir to the throne um, and the good king uh, are brought together, because, and we know that because David is willing to die for the people, even when he doesn't get anything out of it, um, although he... he that's how he ends up in Saul's family and all of that as well. But uh, that integrated understanding of the universe and of the uh, uh, of the rulership is not something that people know or assume or believe in. So when we hear theocracy and we know that Jesus, that means Jesus is ruling, we know that means more freedom. We know that means more space for life. We know that means less government coercion in our lives, right? All of that. They think that means um, an invisible person in the sky gets to tell us what to do. Um, That sounds like tyranny. Now that, there, we're already living under tyranny. That's what's great. <laughs> we, we don't, I mean, you have to get a license um, to cut your neighbor's hair. Like I, it's, it's. You have to wear under- a seatbelt in your car. <laughs> right. That's, I mean, that is true. It's, it's usually smart to wear a seatbelt too. Yeah. But. Um, it's smart to do a lot of things that the government hasn't yeah. yet told me to do. Right, right, I know. but I get to make those no, we, decisions. We, we live in it, we live under a crazy amount of tyranny, but we it's invisible to us because we already assume um, a tyrannous understanding of the world. There's the a cosmos, tyrannous cosmology yeah. that we've already bought into. But Jason, and so a tyrant doesn't a, a tyrant makes sense. A, a uh, ruler that's not a tyrant doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't fit into this kind of world. I mean, this is why wow. Nietzsche said all we have to do is explain. He's and he's explicit. He said we don't have to argue against God. He said God is dead. Right? The cosmos, this cosmos, has already proven to us that God is dead. All we have to do is explain psychologically where a need for God arose, and people will themselves conclude atheism. Because they've already got all the assumptions of atheism in their cosmology. Right. Nietzsche saw it clearly. Atheism is assumed in our cosmology. All we need to do is show them where the idea of God came from. And they will conclude atheism on their own. Freud picks that up. He writes an entire book arguing it. Okay, hold on. Let me write this down. Uh, okay, I want you to think about this while I'm writing this down. But okay, it's two things. Uh, 
maybe there's three. How you went to a seminary, right? I yeah, I went to Greyfriars. <sighs> okay, so I know they probably dealt with stuff like this in Greyfriars, right? Like cosmology was a part of that. You you, it was a lot. I mean, we we got a great library and we were taught how to read because mm, so. that's all the time you have <laughs> right you got two years what else do you need i mean two seriously years to be taught how to read um i mean it's great great theologically and pointing me to particular books and authors um okay you know, but i don't yeah. yeah so but there isn't a place that i can think of where this fits into our theological training for pastors. I don't know where this is part of, like you need to, like if anything needs to be established inside of our theological foundation in our seminaries, in our churches and in our people is a right cosmology. Like you, like, like we need, like that's essential to even thinking about anything on planet earth is a proper cosmology. You know what? Most people hear when you say cosmology, they think, wait, are you talking about putting on makeup? <laughs> no. He's, well, maybe. Cosmetology. That's yeah. what most people think I'm talking about when I say cosmology. Literally, there's not a, it's not even a vocabulary word that people have anymore. That's how far we are. Because the, cause the word cosmology assumes that there's an integrated universe that you can study as a whole. We don't believe that anymore. And so we don't even have a word for it. Well, when you say that, there's fragments of study as a whole that are that are uh, it's almost like being blind and filling pieces out there that belong yeah. to this idea. I, I believe you, but I can't see what those study as a whole just is kind of out there. You know what I mean? Like whole what? You know? <laughs> so, right. um, so I guess the question is. Um, there's two questions here. I think there's two questions. Yeah. One is how do we establish within ourselves a proper biblical cosmology? Because when you gave, I, I remember, I remember this very well. You, I said, hey, get, hey, I, I want to engage in metaphysics. I don't understand the the conversation of metaphysics and metaphysical reality. And, and you gave me the set of books about the stars. Yeah, and I was like. You actually read them. Most people never even read them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was like, hey, if I really want to know, you gave me, um, uh, was it Sun, Moon, Stars? Sun, Moon, Earth, yeah. Sun, Moon, Earth. And I was it's always the book that I, I mean, I push that book on everyone and most people are like, but this doesn't affect me at all. Yes, you, that's what my thought was. Yeah. Sun, Moon, Earth. I was like, why are we going to do astrology or something like that? Or astro- I don't know. Like, what are we doing here? And, um, and so, I, but I read it. But, but, Here's the thing. Who led the, who, how did the wise men find Jesus? This is the stars, right? (laughs) But you didn't tell me that when I got the book, like become like a wise man, read the book. You'll be like them. Yeah. (laughs) You didn't say that part. You just said, you want to know about metaphysics? Here you go. I was like, "Uh, okay, this is so weird. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. but, But it's, it's, it's because we're t- you have to back into it because you can't see your own metaphysics. That's that's the difficulty. Well, Walker Percy, then in um, Love in the Ruins, what, what book was it that you gave me? Uh, yeah, no, Love in the Ruins is is the novel version of Lost in the Cosmos. Lost in the Cosmos. Yeah. That's what it was. And so he takes a part. He actually tells you he's like, all right. 
it's about to get crazy. <laughs> so and it does. And and he's like, you don't have to read this part. You can continue reading on here's a page you can jump to, but I'm about to go through this. And he goes and tracks and goes through the stars and the way that they're designed and the way that they move and and everything. And I'm like, I started go I made it halfway through and I was like, I don't I can't I don't have enough of this juice up here to maintain this trajectory. So <laughs> well, yeah, and there's no going back. That's the difficulty. Once you see it. Right. Once you the, see it. It's like the it's like you know, taking the pill and leaving the matrix. There's no going back. So I need to finish Lost in the Cosmos. I, I have the audio version of it, so I'm gonna continue going. I mean, I finished the book, but I, I didn't finish that part because I, I couldn't understand. For me, I was so disconnected from this type of cosmological argument that and I'll say this in a second, but, but that I couldn't see a way to get from where I was to what he was talking about and then connect where to go from there. Right. So I, right. I'm, I didn't have a bridge in my theology, theological foundation, nor my cosmological understanding to get me to where he was. I understood that we we're talking about stars. I understand we were talking about the sun and all these movements and stuff. But I wasn't able to make I wasn't able to make that that jump as easily. The more and more we've been talking, there's been moments of what I have read that have come back to and say, "Wait a second! Everything that we talk about theologically is centered tangibly in the universe." Right. <laughs> right. And so now, all of a sudden, with that foundation and presupposition, I am searching almost like God has put treasures out in the universe. And revelation of who he is out there. I'm searching those things to say, okay, Lord, how do I marry these two? There's a marriage somewhere here that I don't. And, and that's been really fun to see. But how do, how do I reestablish a biblical cosmology? And then after I do that, um, because I realized from you talking that we talk to the world and we talk about the world in the terms and in the way that the world talks about things. So when we even use the word theocracy, we're actually meaning exactly what it is that they're afraid of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. When we talk about, um, okay, I don't know how many questions I'm throwing at you. I'm throwing so many. Okay. Cause I have another question about theocracy stuff, but how do I first establish a biblical cosmology because I feel like what that's going to do is shift my theological foundations. It, it absolutely does shift your theological foundations. But I mean, if you think about it, like if you're um, putting a new foundation under an old house, if you ever seen, you know, they lift the house and then they start, pouring, you know, pour new concrete. And it's, it's amazing um, how many things you don't realize are out of line, right? Until you lift it up and level the house. And then you're, and the, so the whole house is like, and you're like, why? And so the, the beginning of it is you have to remember to not forget the things you already know in the process mm. because it feels pretty revolutionary. Mm. And that's what happens to some people. Um, they start studying it and they forget the things they already know yeah. in the process um, because they feel like I've been lied to. I have, you know, I haven't been told the whole story and that's true. You haven't. And it's easy to say to, to then turn on your old teachers and, but you know, they, they, 
the because the beginning of it is is a you have to embrace a thankfulness for the his that that it's a historical cosmology including your own life <laughs> right so being thankful backwards is the only way to begin this kind of process forwards is to just say okay I'm uh, not going to turn turn on the teachers that came before because that's a that's thinking in in terms of this of the more modern what's called an idealistic or um, uh, understanding uh, where rather than a historical cosmology um, you know, Christianity is at the way God created the world it's a historical cosmology you begin by saying okay I'm right here. I'm thankful for the teachers that I've had before. I'm thankful for the institutions that I've gone through. Mm. And as things shift and change, I'm not going to, they're not my rivals. I'm not going to turn on them because that's an ahistorical and not a, not a historical cosmology. So the beginning of it is thankfulness, right? Um, because things are going to be, are going to creak a lot um, as you, as you shift and change and, and, move things and then and then whichever resource where you, you can get to everywhere from anywhere um, in an integrated cosmos so you can start with anything um, the place I like to begin uh, is a book called an offering of uncles yeah. because it presents a positive vision it's so easy it's much easier to get traction by talking about what you don't believe but it's harder to get distance by talking about what you don't believe, right? Um, and an offering of uncles just assumes this integrated understanding of the cosm of the cosmos, uh, a, po uh, a poetic cohesiveness to God's creation, a poetic cohesiveness to truth, and um, and then revels in it, enjoys it, moves forward with it. Uh, and uh, Capon, uh, Robert Farrar Capon, um, and it's. It's out of print. Oh, I made that. I made that book list. On don't Amazon. say it on the show because everybody's gonna be like, "Ooh, is it available I on Amazon?" I don't know how to share it. That's the problem. Maybe uh, we'll figure it out. We'll put it like in the show notes or something like that. A show link notes, okay. That you can have. Um, so, um, do you think but it's it's a poetic cohesiveness that you're that you are studying? Mm. So there, the the poetic cohesiveness reality. Um. The, uh, the way the way to get there is to find people with a poetic poetic cohesiveness and learn to see it or or learn to experience it right so like so Rene Girard, that, those guys like yeah that? uh well so Rene Girard he is the he's the one who um he's working backwards from uh the rivalry of modernity um back into a cohesiveness mm. uh, but he's the one that, for me, that opened my eyes to the foundational nature of rivalry in a, a non-integrated cosmos. Mm. Right. And it explains a lot. It explains a lot about the modern world. Um, but uh, and then he backs in uh, because he it he becomes a Christian later in life because of his the the God opening his eyes to the rivalry. Um and so he ends up backing into it. Uh, but guy, so, you know, Dante has the, the poetic cohesiveness, yeah. but then so do guys like GK Chesterton. 
Mm. Um, and he's a little bit more accessible. C.S. Lewis, uh, he's a lot more accessible because um, he he's got his eyes open to it. Here's a, you know, Jason. While you while you're looking for another, I gotta add. Oh, the camera's just following you all the way around. It's tilting sideways, and it's interesting oh. how it's, that's really fun. Uh, but you know, here's one of the things. Why does it seem like the more I read, I'm finding myself reading a lot of Catholics. Yeah. And it's troubling because I know that they have a massive problem in justification by faith alone. And yet when it comes to certain things, it's like they've been the keepers of the books in one way or another, almost like the Jews with the scriptures, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like that they've, they haven't lost it. I mean, they've lost it in practice, but some of their teaching that they've had in the early earlier time particularly have been elements that I don't see much inside of Protestantism anymore. Right. So they've, they've lost the foundation of that practically in the, in justification, but they've gotten it right in a lot of ways um, in some of their older writings and things that have perpetuated over time where as it relates to the integrated universe, like they get that. Right. Yeah. You've, and, well, there's a, uh, I mean, I've, I've got my guesses as to the explanation. I think what happened was um, so the high in the high Middle Ages is when you have the beginning of the disintegration um, of truth. And the Protestants were the ones that held on to the medieval conceptions. Um, I mean, there's a reason that Milton is defending it. He's he's a Protestant. Um, he's defending the integrated universe over against uh, the the folks that are fighting against it. Um, the and early in er, the then that that defense of it moves to the intellectuals in early America, the founding fathers. Um, the defense of an integrated understanding of the universe. You've got some people arguing in a more revolutionary way, but France basically melts down, right? So the Roman Roman Catholicism, the center, the heart of Roman Catholicism at that point um, is in France and Italy. France melts down and literally flattens, egalitarianizes everything through blood, right? It um, they, they took all of Satan's arguments for egalitarianism in Paradise Lost and said, I think we're on his side, right? And, mm. and, uh, literally just killed the people that were higher ab above them in any sort of hierarchical system. Um, well, the uh, so the French um, and the Italians and then the Irish, where there was a lot of Roman Catholics, they have major societal meltdowns and lose all of it. Um, the I, the uh, and so uh, but in America, um, you have people that have that integrated understanding, but it's all across the board. Protestants, you've got Roman Catholics that flee here, but the reason that they can integrate into society here is because they're the product. They're the the Roman Catholics that hold on to that uh, integrated that universe, yeah. integrated understanding of all things. Um, the the revivalism here is what actually undoes our integrated understanding of the universe. So the revivalism individualizes, decovenantalizes our understanding of 
eternity and of reality. Kind of like Finneyism. Is that what you're thinking about? Finneyism. Finneyism. Yeah. Um, and there was some of it in the first great awakening as well. Um, and, and some of it had to do with the fact that you had these preachers and people are being really moved and, and friends and the churches lock their doors and say, we don't do that here. Right. And so that's some of it, but you have, um, and even guys like Edwards, there's not a, there, there, who, who argues, um, for the, the, uh, he, for a revivalistic cosmology, right. Um, in salvation or revivalistic historicity, uh, of an individual salvation, even though believes in the, the covenant story for the law, for the church as a whole, he, for individuals, he's, he's a lot more skeptical. Um, mm-hmm. but then the revivalism basically guts the cosmology of the American church. Revivalism doesn't touch the Roman Catholicism in America. Just revivalism doesn't hit it. And so they have a, a continuity with the early American, um, thinkers that we don't have as Protestants, um, because of revivalism, we, we threw out anything. So, we, you know, we, you'll say, we'll, we'll, we'll say things like, you know, there's, there's no grandchildren in, um, in the, or there, there's no grandchildren in the church, right? Everybody's either a direct son or not at all. Right. And, and there's a truth to that, right? We, we don't depend upon the faith of previous generations. We don't merely depend on the faith of previous generations thinking we don't have to have our own faith. Um, but at the same time, God says, I will be a God to you and to your children. Right. So, and, and to your children's children, right? So w- there's a, a, a faith that says, well, but there are grandchildren in the faith, right? Timothy is told he's a grandchild of his grandmother um, that, and that he should, be, he should be looking at the faith of his grandmother and saying, hallelujah, right? I'm a, nice. I'm a grandchild. Right. So there's a the continuity of generations that's expected in the integrated universe um, that is considered the norm in an integrated universe. Um, <coughs> that's an, that's because of that can be embraced by faith or it can be an explained, you know, it can um, one of the reasons there's so much. Uh, uh, there was so much racism um, in America was because they tried to secularize that understanding of generations um, through revi- in uh, w- during revivalism. They wanted to hold on to the the understanding of of generational continuity, but they put it into blood. Right? They would say good blood, bad blood. He's got good blood. He's got bad blood. Um, he, and they're talking about that continuity but it's an attempt at a biological secular explanation of the continuity of generations. Um, and it, that it just produced all the, the racism, but even the understanding of races is a part of the cosmological revolution, right? It's the people that are, ex, that are, uh, that are instituting the cosmological revolution, um, that are developing, the understanding of races uh, and, you know, that are saying you've got black people, red people, white people, yellow people, 
uh, and that they are each uh, different. They're each on a different continuity um, from one another because uh, of the disintegration of the human race that is that eventually Darwin explains through the mechanism of uh, of uh, of selection, biological selection or, you know, survival of the fittest. Natural selection, yeah. Natural selection. But they already Linnaeus had already developed the idea. He just didn't have a mechanism to explain it. Um, and he's the one that invented races, right? That that the human race is breaking off into different branches, um, and those branches are rivals of one another because you can expect uh, a that there's a fundamental rivalry, right? The the different branches of humanity, which he colored, he or he identified by different colors, uh, um, black, red, yellow, white. Um, he said they are rivals with one another for the limited resources of the planet cosmological um, foundation wow. be- because of the uh, because there's a fundamental cosmological rivalry that's what you expect uh, and darwin came along and said oh let me explain the mechanism by which one wins over the other right but they already had made the cosmological leap you know as, as we're thinking about this my head is thinking everything in nature when we talk about a limited amount of resources, everything in nature speaks completely against that. Right. One seed in an apple produces multiple seeds. Right. right. One seed in an apple, I mean, you know, um, and one apple can produce an orchard within a couple of generations. Right. Exactly. I mean, and yeah. everything that God has built into this world is like, if you work it, and do and be like me the way that I've created things, you then can have fruitfulness as you follow that particular pattern. Like that's, that's, and we have completely, we have to be blind of nature not to see that we have to come up with an excuse for why fruits and vegetables have more than one seed in them. When we, when we get like, what's that purpose? What is that? You know, like we, it's amazing. The more I think about it, it's like there is no such thing as limited resources of something that we can't find or have more of, right? Like God has made a world that gives us multiple resources of something. If we yeah. take in, if we are faithful and believe in faith and operate in that way, he blesses and it says, here's some more, right? Like it's, here's more of it. Right. I mean, that it, this was in my Bible reading yesterday, but it's Proverbs 11 uh, 26 people will curse him who withholds grain but blessing will be on the him the head of him who sells it <laughs> that, that, i mean it's very capitalistic you know it, um because the bible is is but um there's a, a a withholding of the you know god gives you a blessing um that's far more than you can handle yourself and you withhold it when you think in terms of rivalry right and he says it says there's a curse that comes with when God gives an overflow, uh, overflowing of blessing and you won't sell it to people. Mm. Right? But because because the problem is never that the world doesn't produce enough. The world produces an overwhelming amount. The problem is that the rivalry ensues and people withhold it for themselves rather than sell it. Right. Um, rather. And because money is just a of 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 saying you've added value to my life, right? You, you give people money cause they're adding value to your life. And then 
um, you get to add. So there's a blessing that comes when God fills your granary in an overflowing way and you get to sell it to people you get yeah. to add value to their lives. That, that's so funny. The, 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 I have been in situations where I am buying something from somebody and I just can't believe I'm like, Oh man. And they're take, they're taking my money and giving me this item and they can't believe that this right. is, and this yeah. transaction is us as we're leaving each other, blessing each other because you blessed me in the transaction. Oh man, thank you so yeah. much. No, man, thank you so much. This is a, no man, this is a blessing to me. You don't know how much you blessed me. Like you don't know how much you blessed me. Let me tell you. And, and this is weird yeah. exchange. And it's like, that should happen with almost everything that we do. <laughs> here's here's the thing. It is a holdover. The fact that we say thank you when we buy something, that's not the, re- the that's not everywhere in the world, right? You spend you spend time in um you know I went I was in Jordan, it's a Muslim country. Um and there's some you you meet some wonderful people, you know, Muslims that you think, you know, we'd be friends if we lived in the same town. Yeah. Um you, and then you go to uh to some point where there's a financial exchange. We're just checking into our hotel. I get there and and it, it's just a mob, right? Pushing forward. They don't line up. They don't and <coughs> and and uh they it's a push to who's to get to the front. And then when you get there, you don't say thank you after you're done with your ex- exchange of money. Mm. Um and I was and I thought, where does that come from that's weird and i think it was a bill bryson book that i found the the history of thank you in america <laughs> for exchange of goods um and it's this really interesting thing that it's a, it's a, it's a throwback to a, a time when we believed in an integrated universe that's how far back it goes and it, it we don't realize how important that understanding is um, that when you exchange goods and services for cash, everyone says thank you to everyone because we believe because it's a symbol that the world is an overflowing place of goods and services and, and goodness. And that, um, and that when we give money to somebody um, it's a, it's a, blessing right it's a blessing to get to give money to somebody in exchange for goods and services but that's because that's a scriptural integrated universe understanding that just hangs around because we love those things so um but you know there's a lot about revivalism that that shows us that it's a belief that it's no longer in an integrated universe that also hangs around you know, um, liturgies used to reflect the movements of the stars and the planets. And, you know, because you look in the. You can't. No, no, no. Don't. You can't be blowing my mind more than <laughs> once in the show. <laughs> Don't right, you I do stuff. Save that one for what another is time. It? OK, go just a little but bit. Just you, give me a little bit. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> OK, I was like a drug addict. OK, okay just, 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 just a little this, hit. I mean, it goes back to the Old Testament, right? There's seven. There's seven lamps, you know, there's a lamp stand with seven lamps because of the seven visible planets in the sky. Right. So the, um, so there's that part. Okay. All right. Uh, and so, and so when, because you get to Jesus and he holds the seven, um, 
the the seven stars in his hand um, in Revelation, right? It, it, this the seven the seven planets because he is now, and so the, and this is the book of Hebrews. It says we used to. We, we we had the 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 clean, our cleansings in the temple and in the tabernacle are a reflection of what Moses went and saw in the heavens. Mm. And then he came back down and he built uh, a likeness of what he saw up there. And when we see Jesus um, standing in the heavenly places, he's got the seven stars in his right hand. And that was something that it's also a reflection of the imperial claim to ultimate authority because um, uh, you on the coins of the time, the emperor would hold the sun, the moon, Mercury, uh. Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter in his right hand um, or Jupiter and Saturn in that, uh, in his right hand. And so Jesus is like, well, no, actually I hold that, but it's in the midst of a worship service, right? You've got this worship service going on and he's, he's got those and that, and that, hand it says then he reaches down and he touches john right so if you remember in isaiah 6 um holy 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 is the lord god of hosts so i am undone i'm a man of unclean lips and he brings over a coal from the altar and and he cleanses him well john i'm a man that's undone he falls down it and jesus cleanses him with the sun the moon the stars touches him and um you which is and there's this symbolism is consistent throughout you because we're seated like stars in the heavenly places we're we are now the lights in the heavens and and all of that but um the older the older understanding of the liturgical movements within church were that it's we're supposed to reflect the love that the heavens the, the love our love towards god the way the heavens love god and that is through the liturgical movements that they make throughout the year. So the consistency, the calen- the ca- the different, the calendar, um, the church calendar, we establish all of that partly because we're reflecting the heavens, which reflect the heaven of heavens. Um, right. We, we have, we worship um, through a church calendar, through a, uh, through the year, through the liturgical, different liturgical phases of the year, because the heavens have phases and they're a reflection of the heaven of heavens. And it's our job to take the heaven of heavens and, you know, I don't know, poetically imitate um, on, on the earth how it is that the created heavens worship the uncreated heavens right that's no different than the garden right that's it's it isn't no it's no different than the garden it's a reestablishment of the garden um but it it's a it's a it's an understanding that when we sing the doxology right praise god from whom all blessings flow praise praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly hosts right we're inviting the sun the moon and the stars to worship with us to join us in worship, right? That the, what in the old Testament, we looked at the stars, we looked at the heavens, we looked at the sun, the moon and the stars, and they directed us mm. into which festival we are supposed to be in, right? They, that God set the sun, the moon and the stars on the fourth day as authorities and um, as symbols of authority, as well as, as well as calendars that set both the time, it says, and the worship services. It set the festival days. 
we we followed them. They led us into worship into different festivals. We every time we sing the doxology, we're showing that that role has been switched. Now we lead the sun, the moon, and the stars into worship. They don't lead us into anymore. We set the calendar, and then we invite them to our Pentecost festival. <laughs> Right, right. We invite them to Easter service. Right. The doxology is um, is a cosmological revolution. Is the cosmological revolution of the resurrection ascension ascension of Jesus every time we sing it. Right. It's a reminder of that. And we just sing through it, and we don't even notice that we just invited the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the angels to join the congregation because they're no longer up front. I'm on this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the you world know, is such a such an exciting and better place than we think it is. Part and of, salvation is so much of a bigger deal than we think it is as well. Being being illiterate hurts. <laughs> being, I mean, there are. You know, it's starting to read and learning how to read and engaging in good literature um, places you. One of the things that people haven't learned about bitterness, everybody's like, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter about it. I'm not bitter about it. But one of the first things that when somebody says I'm not bitter, I don't believe them because with bitterness, you can't see it. Right. Your bitterness itself is something that has blinders on it. You're not allowed to see it. So you need someone or something outside of yourself to point to you so that it's like, that's it. Oh, okay. And I feel like when we have our education, our we, we think we're smart. We got cell phones. Right. We have, you know. Computers, you and I are talking through a device for three hours away, you know, um, and we're talking like we're right next to each other. And so we have all this technology. And so we think that we're intelligent. But we have no concept, no concept of intelligence um, as it relates to the cosmos and how the world fits together and how beautiful it is. Everything at this whole conversation, the thing that I've walked away with more than anything else is just how beautiful the, when the world fits together, how beautiful it really is. And we see beauty in aspects and moments, but we think it's random. Yeah. Even, even as Christians, we think it's random, which is why I think, which is why we have Christians who are afraid of the kingship of Christ. You know, right. and that's the part that I, I, cause I've tried to understand like, why are Christians fighting against every time I hear a Christian, I'm like, well, we don't want a theocracy. We don't want that. It's like, it's like, why are you fighting against the kingship of Christ? It's not something you have an option of anyway. No more than you have the option for the sun to be in the sky. <laughs> right? Yeah. This, but that, and that's, that's where I'm, get, I'm learning. I'm learning. But the sun in the sky is not your enemy. The sun in the right. sky provides light, provides nutrition and health and time and, re and energy. It actually gives your body minerals. <laughs> Like the sun of the sky is literally when you're out there giving your body vitamin D. That's what's going on. And 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 in the same way, what do you think Christ would do as he is ruling? B 
beast worse than the sun and the sun? No. I mean, we that's just how disconnected that we are from this integrated universe that we have no we look at the sun. Ah, it's trying to kill us. It's like it's putting minerals in your body. Right? <laughs> that's what it's doing. It's actually right. healing you. And you're like, oh, it's trying to kill me. And and go ahead. I mean, we we live we we live in this crazy upside down understanding of the world because we think the world is always out to get us right the world is offering up a feast you know day in and day out feeding us you know all of these wow. things and and we're like it's trying to kill us everything's always trying to eat <laughs> us and kill us and and that's how we tell stories you know um this is this is why something like H.G. Um, Wells was captured the imagination of the time machine, captured the imagination of multiple generations, but I think is also um, really dangerous, right? Because it it forms the ima- now it's not it's not dangerous when you're to people with eyes open, right? You can read H.G. Wells, you can say, oh, I get it, he's a great storyteller, he's adopting, he but he has fully adopted the mythology of modernism. Mm-hmm. And so when he travels back in time, everything is always trying to kill you, right? That it's all the reason that we, there's any safety now is because we've gathered enough power to hold back the chaos that it would otherwise be trying to consume us. You go back in time to before mankind had gathered power into national governments and everything is always trying to kill you. Everything is trying to destroy you because chaos hasn't yet been pushed back to make room for life. And we think um, we we you can read it and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what that mythology would mean. But he has adopted a mythology. Right. It's not a scientific theory that he's adopted. He's adopted a mythology and a, a, a story about the nature of things. It derived from its beginnings, right? That's what a mythology is. We as Christians haven't adopted our own mythology, our own mythos, our our own story of the story that gets us the meaning of things by telling us the beginning of things, right? We, we have one of those, right? The scripture provides one and we have, we spend our time. Um, we, well, we, we don't spend our time, adopting it as our mythos, as our mythology, right? In the beginning, everything was beautiful and wonderful and glorious. And God created a world that's a perfect fit for creatures like us. And then he said, guess what? Let's go garden the whole thing, right? He brings Adam in, into the garden before anything is, it has grown up in the garden. And then before his eyes, he makes the garden grow, right? Everything grows up. And he says, look, this is how this place works. It's wonderful. You're going to love it. It's all edible. You're going to it's it's going to be delicious. Um, Go out and imitate me the way that I made this place into a garden. You go out and do that with the rest of the world. The, The it's full to the brim with resources. Now, we sinned and we brought um, thorns and thistles into the world. And now the world is cursed and we have to sweat. Um, to to get at those same resources. But when Jesus was going up on the cross, it was thorns and thistles that became his crown. 
right? He's broke that curse. He, he took that curse onto the cross with him and ra- it was wrapped right around his head. So that curse of thorns and thistles has been broken. So now we're going out into the world, decursing this place and returning it to its original intent, which is the perfect kind of place to provide uh, the sorts of things that we need to have fellowship with God and have fellowship with one another to, to bless our neighbor. It's the kind of world that it is. Um, and Jesus wrapped that curse around his head and turned it into a crown. So we can, we can charge off into the world with, by faith, you know, knowing it's still going to be difficult, but it's because God is telling the kind of story that has those difficulties in it. Cause that's a better story. Not because he hates us now or something. I've taken more notes in this show than I have taken in any other show that we've done. And I don't know if it's because maybe I've just had a pen in my hand and wanted to write stuff down or if I feel like this is, I feel like I started over in some ways 